You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you something, people. As you know, I got married, man, it was almost three months ago when I got married. And it's so funny when I run into guys I know because they're like, hey, man, hey, man, how's married life? Things change yet. And I'm like, no, they haven't changed yet. We were together for eight years and a year and a half of it, I was bi-coastal. She moved to L.A. and now we're back in New Jersey. So nothing's changed except her name. And that's about it. So when I play Words with Friends, instead of playing Joanne Butaro, I play Joanne Butaro Cooper. And there's no hyphen. Anyway, we have a great show today. My guest is a very talented actor, writer, director. Um, I don't know if he plays music, but usually when guys do all that, they might pick up a guitar every once in a while. And my guest is Chris Eigman. How you doing, Chris? I'm great. Congratulations on getting married. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Now, are you a married guy? I am, yeah. I yeah. heartily support it. I actually knew because I, uh, I I started dipping into all of your podcasts and we've listened to the Dan or Shannon one where you talked about it. And so... That's how I got caught up on that. Okay, no, because I, I read. I see. I read. I'm doing my research on you. I believe you got married in 1993, um, and yeah. and the thing is, though, you never want to ask because if you do research on Wikipedia, sometimes it changes. Like I interviewed an actor last week who, basically, I knew he was married married twice, but now he just got married again and it never said it. So I didn't want to sit there and go, "Hey, so you're married," and then you go. I'm divorced, then I feel like an ass. Yeah, no, it, it ended awfully, and I really hate talking about it. No, we've been married for a long time, and it's great. Now, now you're from Colorado originally. Um, what, right. what got you into acting? What was it, when you were younger, because we're the same age, were you watching TV, were you watching movies, were you playing sports? What were you doing that ended up making you gravitate to? Uh, you know, I, I was doing all of that. I mean, I was, I was um, God knows, watching a lot of television and certainly going to the movies all the time. But uh, sort of as a tonic to that, I would work in Montana on a ranch in the summers. So it you know wasn't all television and multiplexes with me growing up. But I think a real reason that I became an actor, I think a lot of people of my generation who became actors and you know writers and in the arts, our parents, you know, were this like weirdly newly um, liberated 1970s parenting where everybody had their copy of Free to Be You and Me and all of that. And so they, and they spent a lot of time putting their kids into arts programs. Um, and so that's how I'm sure, you know, I got interested in it, starting to go to, like, young drama classes when I was in fourth or fifth grade. Now, you start going into it. Now, now when did you sit there and start focusing that this is maybe something that you want to do? Um, in high school, probably. And I thought, oh, I... I could maybe get good at this. I mean, that's sort of it for me. It's the thing of like, you know, it's very clear you're not good at this right now, but there was an idea that maybe I could get good at this. And there was plenty of stuff that presented to me that I knew I would never get good at. So it's much better to, to sort of go for the thing you have a shot at. Now, now you went to school in Vermont, I believe. Well, you went to high school in Vermont? Right. And then, now... Yeah, yeah. Now, was that just something that you did your family move or why how did you end up in Vermont <laughs> um I kind of run out of schools to go to in Colorado <laughs> and Vermont the school is the Putney school it's still there and it was great uh it was it, it was a working farm so you would wake up early and you know shovel out the dairy barn and they had 
very, very encouraging, and uh, I owe him a lot for that. So you're in, you're in there, you're up in uh, Vermont, which is, you know, it's East Coast, I love the East Coast, and I live on the East Coast, and then you end up going to Ohio for college. Now, now, how did you pick a theater major? I believe you, you dueled in English and theater? I did, yeah. Um, uh, you know, this, this, Kenyon has had a very good, I still does have a very good theater department, and a very, very good kind of vaulted um, English department. And it's, it, you know, it's going to a liberal arts college, you're presented with a choice, which is, um, are you going to study the things that you have a knack for, or are you going to go study things that you don't have a knack for? And I would, if anybody's listening to this and looking, I mean, now it's time to be going around to colleges for a lot of, a lot of folk. I would encourage you to do what I did not do, which is, you know, I knew I was going to be an actor by that point. I knew I was probably going to be a writer at that point. So I wish I had taken a lot of things that weren't English and, and theater courses. I wish I had taken a lot of, you know, econ or poli-sci or, or religion courses. Because that's, I, I, anyway, that's just something I'm dwelling on recently. So you're dwelling on that now. So then you graduate. Now, do you end up in New York? What do you do when you graduate to follow your dream of being an actor? Because you already knew you wanted to do it. Um, the first play I did was or at least the first time I got paid, was a summer stock production in the Poconos of um, the Luxy Blues. And it, it really was a production that, that only a mother could love. And <laughs> it, But uh, it was me and Noah Emmerich, um, who was on The Americans and on Billions and is, has had a, a really lovely career and is also a director. Um, and we see each other occasionally, like we cross paths with each other. And to this day, we still say that that was the most fun we ever had in show business. Like that summer that we spent in the Poconos was, I mean, the play I think was really bad. I mean, the play itself was great. This production of the play was not very good at all. <laughs> and, uh, but it was, it was an unbelievably fun experience. So, so that's always the best way when you, you know, you cut your teeth and you, it's a great experience. So you do the play. Now, was at that point, were you concentrating? Did you think you wanted to go into theater or were you saying, I want to get into movies? What was your, what did you want to do at that point in your life? Um, so I, I've been doing a lot of plays in New York and then I got, I auditioned for this movie and, and I thought, well, <clears throat> never done a, a movie before and this looks like a really good first time movie to do because um, I don't think very many people will see it and that's maybe for the best because this would be sort of like a like a scrimmage movie rather than an actual full bore real game movie um, and, uh, and and I think that lowered a lot of pressure on me and I think a lot of people in that movie it was their first movie surprisingly that movie was Metropolitan and I ended up at the Cannes Film Festival and it appeared to me pretty obvious that a lot of people were going to see this film and but I, I think that that being very confident that nobody was going to see it was the best way for me to do you know my first movie so when you go on your audition and you, you have that as you said you don't have the pressure because a lot of times we put pressure on ourselves you don't have that added pressure of it's going to be a big hit 
Was there a lot of other guys auditioning, and how long was your process? Because I've talked to actors where they've auditioned for a movie, and it goes on for months. And then finally they said to go, screw it, we're not in it, and they get, a, they get a call and go, hey, you got the part. What was your, how long was this yeah. whole system? That actually was very close to the process. Um, I auditioned and auditioned and auditioned and auditioned. And also, look, if, if you're, you know, it's one of the reasons it's so hard being a young actor is because there are so many young actors. Um, you know, that's the largest actor pool in New York City is actors who could reasonably be, you know, 21, 22, 23. Um, so you're, you will never have more competition than when you're that age. So the audition process went on forever. And then I, I heard I did not get it. In fact, I know who did get it. And they were off. They'd filmed for, I don't know, maybe a week or something. And the director then called me and said, you know, we want to make a change. We want to give the guy who we gave your part to, we want to give him another part. We want you to do the part we thought you should do. And I think that evening I was, I was shooting, I think that night. So yeah, I mean, that, and, and I, you're right. That isn't uncommon. That's a, that's a really common thing. I think it happens all the time. It happens even today. Now, so, um, so you, you got the part. And yeah. as you say, you didn't expect it to be a big hit. How long was the actual? Because I, 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 I love that movie. I remember watching it. You know, we used to go into Philadelphia to watch it at the Ritz. That was like a cool, hip theater that, you know, Cherry Hill, New Jersey didn't get certain movies. So you, you went into the city. Right. And uh, how, how long did it take to shoot? Because it, it probably wasn't a big budget movie. Because as you said, it, it wasn't, you know, you, you, there were so many people auditioning for it, but there wasn't any real big names at the time in it. There were no names at the time. I mean, there, there, there was not anybody who was known at that point who was in the movie, except, uh, oh, it's a guy who ran Trauma Films. I can't remember his name. Um, he was like the most known guy. I don't know how, I think we probably had like 25 days, maybe, maybe, maybe less. Um, I honestly don't know. I, I, we would shoot nights and then I would park cars during the day. And so I, and, and all of us were doing that. Everybody was, you know, everybody had a straight job in the day, but nobody had time to sleep. So by the time the movie was, I mean, the movie really is like a chronicle of sleep deprivation more than anything else. By the end, everybody was just, you know, bone tired. But I would say it was a 22 day shoot probably. So you shoot for 22 days. As you said, you have to have your, still have your day job because it's, right. on, it's on, on a movie. Now when it starts taking off, what happens to you? I mean, do you feel the momentum? Because they always say when you're in a project that becomes a hit, as soon as you do something that people watch, everybody wants a part of you. And sometimes it's a pain in the ass, and sometimes you don't know what roles to take. And if you have a bad manager, you it's not good. But what happened to you when after Cannes when you said it was uh, taking off? Well, I mean, it became, you know, I, I became somewhat associated with a kind of thing, a kind of like pretty verbal, pretty quick-witted, pretty, that is all in the writing and has nothing to do with me, but um, I got I got very associated with that, um, which was great, and is still great, um, and it certainly led to other, other gigs, but right after that happened, you know, I knew that Wit wanted to do another movie um, with Taylor Nichols and me, and that seemed to be coming up pretty quickly. Um, I went to LA for the first time and, 
TV and maybe, you know, you'd get like a holding deal to network or a development deal to network. Um, and some of those happened at the same time, which, you know, most times nothing comes of it. And in those instances, nothing really did come of it. But it did help me sort of like, you know, see what California was like and to see a little bit how TV stuff was working. Then I went off and did with film, his second film, Barcelona. And then by the time I got back from that, then I started really doing a lot of TV pilots. Um, and that was, you know, that was back in the 90s where, you know, every every comedian would get a development deal with the hopes to get a, a series. Series were just, it seemed in, in retrospect like a, a really fertile time in television, particularly 30 minutes at Con Television. So, so you're sitting there, you're getting the opportunities. None of the pilots are getting picked up. I know during that time also you went and you shot Last Days at Disco, um, and that was another yeah. Wit movie. So it seemed that you were working with Wit. That wasn't, Wit and I weren't supposed to do that movie together. And by, by, for, I mean, and, and we were very clear about that, that, you know, the world had had enough, we believed, of the Wit, Stone, and Chris Eigenman combination stuff. And there was another actor in that role who at the last minute wasn't going to do it. Um, and I'm not sure why. I never really drilled down on why. And so again, Wick called me, you know, like five days out, four days out, saying, can you do this? And, and I did. But the intent was never to do that movie. Um, and, and I'm very glad I did. But that, that was not the plan. So then you're working along, and I know it's a TV show that Peter Melman created. Peter's been a guest on the show, who's he's just an amazing writer. Oh, really? Yeah, Peter was yeah, on when, when I writer. yeah when I was in when I had my studio in LA when I do it out in LA. Peter came on, and he just wrote it came out with a book that Tony Kornheiser talked he did, about. He just, I just saw that. Yeah, Tony uh, Kornheiser I, gave I, him a shout out on a uh, part of the interruption the other day. I I am looking forward to the book. It's super easy to to order. I just got it. Yeah. He, Melman is an incredibly funny guy, kind of an incredibly smart guy, and you know he came up through Seinfeld. Right now, that's what yeah, cracks was, me up as as an actor going to TV when you got cast. Which had Evan Handler was in the TV show Jennifer Grey. It's it's like you know, right. when you went into that, what were your expectations? Because did you know of Peter's work? Because was Peter after he had left Seinfeld and he got that deal? And I know he. Hey, ABC now, but what was uh, right. what were your expectations going into that? Because he was a known name, and it was ABC. Well, I, I think my expectations were twofold. I think um, personally, my expectation was that this was going to be a huge amount of fun, no matter what happened. Like this was going to be a huge amount of fun. Um, I was also just relieved that finally a pilot I was in had been picked up to series. Like, I've been up to bat so many times. There's been so many pilots that I was just, I was just thrilled that, that one, you know, got put on a schedule somewhere. Um, professionally, you know, it was hard not to have high expectations because we, I mean, Jerry Seinfeld introduced us when we shot the pilot. I think we shot the pilot, to be honest. We shot that on the same stage as Seinfeld, but it was within, I think, the, oh, it was the week that the last Seinfeld episode had aired or something. It was all like, you know, it, and, and the network and everybody else was very much associating us with, with Seinfeld. Um, and there, were, there was no bigger thing in the world 
being uh, to really work so hopefully it really will and you know we I think put some really really good episodes out there but for whatever reason and it could be you know, a network thing or it could be anything the fit wasn't right um, and we we were able to do two half seasons but my first expectation was of having fun and it really was fun it was hilariously fun now, what makes it so fun on a set? Is it just the camaraderie? Is it like when you know when you see basketball players look like they're having fun? Is it because they like each other? Was it just that you guys were all young actors? And you know, I mean, Jennifer, I believe was was known, but the others weren't really known. Was was that that you guys were just having fun? I mean, just sitting there and acting and doing what you loved and not feeling the audition pressure and all the other pressure. I think that's a lot of it. I also think what what contributed greatly um, was the writers and that the and everybody I think um, very much shared the same sense of humor. So, you know, jokes were sincerely appreciated, and and the you know the labor of love to those scripts coming out were really appreciated. And so I think that helped. That went a long way, also. Um, so that's fun. It's also, you know, doing a sitcom is basically banker's hours. I mean, you show up at nine, you go home at four or something. And and it was sort of nice also just to have that, you know, movies, it, it feels like a never-ending war. Our TV shows also can feel like a never-ending war. But sitcoms, they're really by the clock. And that was, I don't know, I found that fantastic also. Now, what happens when it gets canceled? Are you, were you, I mean, you, were you prepared at all? I mean, and it must have been at a point in your life where, as you said, you finally get on a series. The pilots have come close, but you're getting paid for the pilots, so you're not, like, waiting tables, I'm sure. But <clears throat> what happens What happens when it gets canceled? Do you see it coming? Does it blindside you? And how do you react to that? Because you're finally in a, a job where you're actually really, really loving it. Um, you know, I... I can only speak for myself, but when the series was canceled, I didn't really realize the series had been canceled because, and, and, and part of that is, is, is maybe willful ignorance, but I, I'm not sure. It's also, we were a mid-season replacement, right? So, and then we came in at the top of the season, but then they didn't order any more episodes after we'd done like 22 or 23 episodes or something like that. But then there was always the sense of, oh, but maybe they will be ordering more episodes and then maybe we'd be in mid-season next year or something like that. So, and, and which now, I mean, looking back on it, it's just, is silly. Of course they weren't going to do that. But also nobody really wants to look you in the eye and say, your series is canceled. You know, there's always like, there's, there's always room to have a little bit of hope, and then that hope gets exaggerated, overamplified. Um, so the actual moment um, our head was cut off, I didn't really realize our head had been cut off. Now, you have to be, I mean, it had to be frustrating, but then you also have to sit there, you know, your your career, you know, you're not too far into your career. You've had the chances, and you've worked with Whit Stoneman, you've worked with Noah Baumbach, you've worked with Peter Melman. You've worked with great writers. You've worked, wrote with, worked with some really excellent talent. Does that sit there and sit there and make you think, holy crap, like, am I ever going to work with writers to this level again? Because they're all pretty good at what they do. Well, 
if I did think that, it was it was uh, quickly cast aside because then I went on to Gilmore Girls and you know Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino are as good as they get when it comes to writing. So that was you know I don't remember when the sitcom got canceled. I I don't remember ever being in much of a funk about it. I was like, this is I mean this is showbiz and this is exactly what happens. And, this is not, this is an off-told tale, and so, so it goes. Um, so no, I didn't, even though the show didn't, you know, go seven, eight, nine seasons, I still look back and think there are some remarkably good episodes that came out of that, that I'm, that I'm sincerely proud of. So, you know, yeah, it's not the outcome anybody wants, but I, it didn't, I didn't find it too pleasing. Now, now, as you're working at this point, when do you start getting interested in writing and when do you start getting interested in directing? Was that something that was always you had instilled in your mind or was it something at one point you said, I just got to start doing this? Uh, yeah, I think, well, I, I was always doing it, but it was more like at some point I had to start showing this stuff around, right? And, and I wanted to figure out a way um, to write something that I knew I could get made uh, because it's, you know, it's super easy to write um, stuff that won't get made, just for simple reasons like budget. You know, you, nobody's gonna, nobody was gonna throw millions and millions of dollars at me to do a, to do my first feature. And so I was, I had done a movie with Fonka Jansen, and Fonka and I really got along. We we sort of worked the same way, and so I started writing a movie for Fonka because I knew that I, I, I sort of felt like I could, you know, write to her voice pretty easily. And so that's, you know, that's when I ended up writing my first film. Um, and, you know, Bonko was able to do it, which was great. Now, when you, but, oh, you know, no, I was going to say when you're writing, when you're writing for her and then when you're writing for other characters, are you, is it easier to do it because you're an actor and you know what to expect from them because someone who doesn't know actors and writes a screenplay, as you said, sometimes they do budgetary. You know, they say, oh, we want an explosion here, we want an explosion there. They're not realistic. Right. Were you more realistic because you were an actor who had worked in all mediums? I mean, stage, TV, movies, sitcom, you know, on TV, as we said, and dramas. How did that go? How did that affect your writing for that first movie? Um, I, I think, I think the answer is yeah, I think. Um, I, I, I really believe, like, that, you know, if, if, as an actor, if I get a piece of writing that is kind of so-so, um, I can probably make it a little bit better. But if the writing's good, I can think I can make it really good. Um, so that's, so I just sort of work hard to write and write in a way that my actor self would be like, okay, that's pretty good. I can do something with that. Um, you know, so it, it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't need like in just insane exposition runs and, and try to stay away from that and try to stay away from other things that are just really hard to do for actors. I mean, it's not hard to do. It's just, we don't like doing it very much. Because we sort of feel like, as actors, we're now doing the writer's job, which we don't much appreciate. No, I don't much appreciate. Now, the movie, you know, your first movie was Turn the River. It was in 2007, I believe. Now, with the Gilmore right. Girls, I mean, that was that was 
after the Gilmore Girls. How did you go about ca casting on that? My friend Rose Abdu was on the Gilmore Girls. She played Gypsy. And, uh, oh, yeah, you know, and, of course. And now she came back on Bunheads. And I know you directed an episode of Bunheads a few years ago. But yeah. the Gilmore Girls, what was that like for you? Because that was one of those movies where the people who watched that are fanatical. They're like soap opera people. I mean, they they yeah. they just go crazy. Rose, like, they couldn't even put pictures on Facebook of her. I'm friends with her husband of their house because people would find them because people were fanatical. How did that affect you? Oh, because no. you're a guy who, you know, you're, you're a known guy, and then all of a sudden you're on this show. I mean, did people start tracking you down? Well, you know, I, I mean, the thing that was really funny about it, you, look, you're 100% right. The, the fan base was and is fanatical. Um, you know, they have some, they have a, a huge festival up in some town in Connecticut, which apparently resembles the town, but <laughs> the fictional town that, that Gilmore Girls was set in, and, like, the town has a whole celebration. Um, so, yes, that, that is, that's 100% true. But my character was, you know, a, a boyfriend to Lorelei, and one of the central engines of that show was Lauren Graham's character eventually getting together with Luke, another. And that was really, all the years of that show, that was one of the engines. There, there were others. But my character, by virtue of dating, Lauren's character is getting in the way of that thing that everybody wants to happen. So there are, or were at the time, plenty of <laughs> young women who were not happy to see me at LAX getting on a plane. Or they, they were not, I was not, I was like a black hat in the Gilmore Girls. And because everybody knows everything now, you know, I would have 16 year old young women coming up to me asking me how long my contract on the show is. <laughs> They were they were unamused by me. They didn't they didn't find anything I was doing. Now that wasn't across the board, but it was you know these these people these fans knew what they wanted, and I was slowing that down for them. Um, so that was part of my experience also. Well, it's it's funny you say that because I talk to soap opera actors too, and and, and somewhere there's people just they can't separate real life from fiction and I think they want to but then they just think I think they'd rather live in that fantasy world that they'd rather dislike you did you ever get like physically right. threatened at any any time oh, no 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 no, no. And, it, and there was a, a completely good natured aspect to it but but you know these fans they know what they want but they, they hope they get it now, now, what is it like um, being recognized at that point? You're at the airport, you're just chilling out, and then, you know, and you know when they recognize you, especially if they're young, it's for the Gilmore Girls, because they weren't around when Barcelona came out. What what was it like for you just to know that there's a chance of you getting recognized, and it's not always going to be a pleasant experience? Um, uh, I, I, I don't... So, I, being recognized when I really was um, I, so, so I'll tell you story. So when, after I did Metropolitan, my wife and I went out to a very, very, very fancy New York City restaurant that isn't there anymore. And we were spending an enormous amount of money on this dinner and, and like super fancy adults. And I think Metropolitan had been in the theater for maybe a month or two months and it, it, it played forever in New York City. And we sat down very fancy, I ordered wine, very fancy, 
people were like turning in their chairs and looking at me. And I thought, well, you know, that makes some amount of sense because this movie's being displaying and, you know, that's that's fancy and great. And eventually my wife looked over at me and she said, do, do you think those people are looking at you? I was like, well, honey, I mean, I am in a movie and, and it's being it's playing a lot. And then she's like, Sidney Poitier is sitting directly behind us. <laughs> so I, ever since then, if somebody recognized me, I just assume somebody much, much more famous and deserving is standing or sitting behind me. Um, it, it was a very good early on life lesson. So you're acting away, you're on Gilmore Girls, and you were recurring on Malcolm in the Middle, and then during those oh, acting yeah. time, were you writing Turn Turn the River then, or was uh, that... No, I was writing Turn pretty much after I had done uh, The Treatment with the film that Fonka and I did together, and pretty much after that is when I started putting Turn the River together. And and you couldn't do Turn the River today. I mean, you just couldn't get... You would never be able to get it made, I don't think. And we certainly... Not sure how much we made it for. We only made it for, like... $450,000 or something. I mean, I, I, I guess you could probably do it today, but, um, and that, you know, that was great. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and, you know, when it came out, it was, it was a weird time because we got a lot of offers to go on video on demand and, and a lot of, like, a lot of those were really paying well. Um, but I really didn't want to do that. It seemed too early, you know, and so it, it did get, and I also wanted to get a theatrical release just because I wanted it to be reviewed because no reviewer was going to do VOD stuff at that point, you know, 2007, 2008, whatever. They, they, no, you know, nobody was doing that. So it did, and then the, the critics, um, you know, I was just really interested to see what the critics were going to say about it, and by and large, most of them really said nice things about it, and I thought uh, thoughtful things about it, and some didn't, which is the way of the world. And then Sundance Channel also bought it, so it it basically had a short theatrical life and then lived on Sundance Channel for a really long time. Now, what was it like for you stepping behind the camera because you wrote, you directed it, and you have a part in it? What what is it like to have so many hats on? Because if you're just used to acting, now you're. I mean, now I'm sure when you act, when you write it, it's easier for you because you wrote it and you know you. No one knows you better than you do. But now you're directing. How do you, how do you get prepared for that? Because it's you're you're everybody on it. You're wearing a hat. You're doing everything. Right. I. It didn't. You know, a lot of the things that I thought would bug me would bug me. And they, a lot of things, sorry, that I thought would bump me really didn't bump me. But like, you know, sort of what I was comfortable with and what felt really kind of natural and easy and all of that, that stuff, particularly on the set, everything felt very, very familiar. And and I was, I was very clear as I try to be that we're all telling the same story. As long as we're all telling the same story, that makes my job infinitely easier, I think. Um, and so we spent a lot of time in prep just really being clear about what story we were telling. Um, where I became much less uh, comfortable was in post because I'd really never gone through the post experience. Um, and so that was very, very uh, new. And, um, and so that was, that was the biggest learning curve for me. Was post stuck. Now, is it a feeling of relief 
when you get done the picture, when you when you when you wrap it and then everything's done, is it a feeling of relief or do you sit there and say, Oh crap, I should have I should have done this different? What was your feeling when you finally not when you said wrap, that's a wrap, but when you actually got it done and it was in the can. What goes through your mind? Are you really excited or then are you also second guessing? I mean, I've never directed a movie, so I wouldn't know. Um because of that, that was the first one I'd ever done. And on top of that, a lot of my friends were in it. And a lot of my friends gave of their time very generously. You know, uh, Matt, uh, you know, Matt Ross, Martin Hinkle, Fonka. Um, there were just a bunch of people who, and it was great. And then you finish the movie and you think, Oh my God, have, have I, have I done right by my friends? This has to be good because these are my friends and they sort of were showing faith in me. So actually that was the scary moment when you're wrapped and it's the day after and you think, Oh my God, have, have I let my friends down? Have I possibly made something that's not good and will show poorly on them? That became very scary until we were able to, you know, start putting it together and be like, oh, okay, I think maybe we're okay here. Now, is it easier to direct your friends because you know your friends, or is it more of a, an awkward feeling because they are your friends? Um, no, it's 100% easier to direct your friends. I mean, it has been thus far. I, that could change, but I I found it very, very easy. Um, and also because, you know, you'll have, a, you, you'll... You know, I certainly as an actor basically started developing shorthand with like Noah Baumbach and with Stillman because, you know, of those those two, I've done three movies with each of them. And that shorthand kind of extends to all your friends. So if you're talking about a scene where you're two, you're two of your friends are in it, you can say things like, you know, when you hit that turn in the speech, maybe just take it slower. Or even more obscure, like, you know, when it's like da-da-da-da-da, maybe it's da-da-da. And it makes no sense, but you know, the, the two of you know what you're doing. So um, I find that infinitely easier. So after you direct it and it gets done and you said you, you got some good reviews, you got a few bad, but that's like anything in life. It's on IFC. You have that on your belt. That's that's an accomplishment. So, you know, you're a guy, you've done a sitcom, you've been in, you know, movies. Your career, you have, have right. a good career. At that point, what do you want to do? I mean, and how do you go about it? Because you've done everything and I guess it's something where you do you have to choose, you feel? Or what? Did, where does your career take you at that point? Well, at that point, I had another movie sort of coming together. And it was a movie that that um, didn't come together. But it came together until about six weeks before principal photography. And it took a couple of years to, to build it up, only to have it fall apart at the very last minute. But it was a bigger budget. Um, Jesse Eisenberg was set to be in it, a whole bunch of others, and it was it was going to be great. Diane Kruger, Emil Hirsch, and it it just fell apart, and it fell apart because of um, financing issues, obviously, which is why every movie falls apart ultimately. And I, that was the thing that I think all filmmakers go through. Oh, I think most filmmakers go through. I think most, it's not uncommon for filmmakers to have something that they desperately want to do that can't get done for whatever reason. But I, at that 
if it gets lower than this, I'm going to have to, I really have to rethink some things. But, and, and the thing that you realize when you're sleeping on the floor of an airport, particularly a big airport, is how unbelievably cold it is. Because usually you've got tens of thousands of, of warm bodies circulating around, getting the place on. But when there is nobody in the airport and the air conditioner is still going, you, you've had a movie just collapse on you, you've missed your flight, you're sleeping on the floor, and you're freezing to death. <laughs> so, um, that I will I will never forget. Now, um, now what was the movie yeah. about? Was the movie a, a, another drama, or was it a comedy? Because you seem like a pretty funny guy, you did a lot of funny parts. What, what, was, this, what was this movie about? It was not. It was about the building of the atomic bomb in New Mexico. Um, and, and it was also about jazz uh, about bebop jazz that was coming together right around then, and uh, yeah, so that's what it was. And it was about these kids. I mean, these young people who built this insane thing that potentially could have blown up the world. Um, so, I mean, that in and of itself, you know, already I'm making a few of the mistakes that I been careful not to make at the beginning when I started writing a director, right? Which is don't get yourself into a position where your budget is going to be your executioner. Uh, because you're in charge of the budget because you're writing for your budget. So, you know, don't write yourself like a ticking time bomb in your own screenplay. But I did. And so, that's what happened. Now, now, when you had that awful time in Chicago, did you did you ever think about leaving the business? Or did you want to go back to acting? Because it was just too hard to go through the bullshit? I mean, what was... Where, oh, no, I... It, I always knew I would keep on acting. I was always, I no, and I didn't think I was going to leave the business. I mean, I, not at all. I mean, it was bad. It wasn't that bad. I don't know what business I'd be in if I wasn't in this business. Um, I mean, uh, you know, I, somewhere in middle management would be way beyond what I'm capable of. So I think I'm here. Now, what is that? Is that, is that on the street? Oh, yeah, that's something. Sorry, you can hear that. No, I, um, it's funny. Are you, are you in Manhattan? No, I, the window of my office looks out over a school, and the school gets deliveries, and I'm unconvinced that this is a food delivery for the school. Yeah, it is. Now, uh, although it's going to stop doing it. It's going to stop making that noise pretty quickly. Oh, that's fine. Now, now you know, you're directing now. Now, then you ended up directing an episode of Bunheads. Is that because they knew you? From the Gilmore Girls, and did they know you were already directing? Oh yeah, Amy. I mean, I've known Amy Sherman since before Bunhead, or since before Gilmore Girls. Um, when I had one of those development deals, she and I had had met years and years earlier. I, I think she had maybe just left Roseanne's show, maybe, and 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 ever since then, you know, we've really gotten along. Um, so then with Bunheads, I think I came on to, uh, I was the boyfriend for an episode to Sutton Foster, and then they asked, I guess the next season, I'd come directly. And, you know, what was, what was really fun about that, I mean, it was an incredibly talented cast, but um, was directing dance numbers. You know, directing dance numbers on a huge studio floor with three walls of mirrors and 25 dancers was hilariously fun. Like that, I just, I never, you know, that was, it was 
my wit and there but there's not a hell of a lot of dancing and, and big ballet dancing at that right so that i love doing now your latest movie well first of all is the movie that got uh that didn't get made was that called trinity uh it's been called so many things but yes it is it has at one point been called trinity it was originally called midnight sun okay because in imdb it uh, says it's it's in production No, it's, it's under your uh, name. It's on, maybe it says not production, but it says announced or something like that. But you know how IMDb is. IMDb is like... Yeah, no, no, I know. I know. There, IMDb had me playing Batman at one point. Um, <laughs> uh, that's not true. Oh, yeah, it says in production. <laughs> well, no, it isn't. Well, it now was, but it isn't. Now, your latest, your, well, the movie, your last movie you made was Seven in Heaven. It's, it's, once again, it's for uh, teenagers, because you said the movie Trinity was somewhat for teenagers. Or, uh, do, you find it, do you find it easy to write for teenagers? I mean, do you have children? Um, I do have a child, but he's, he's going, he is one year away from being a teenager. Okay. Um, but I, it's true. I mean, you know, yeah, I, I think that, I, I do think that I write about one way or the other, I do think I write about being a kid a lot. Um, I think a lot of things that I learned and felt and experienced as a kid were super defining, but they aren't things you could, like, it, you know, it, it's just, that's what happens. You're young and, and that stuff really molds you and really affects you. So, um, so yeah, I like writing. I like writing for kids. Now, Seven in Heaven, how did you come up with the idea and do you like that genre of the what if it the mystery horror? I mean, what? How did? How do you pick the genre you want to write for? Well, so that came about directly out of Trinity or Midnight Sun or whatever the title of the day is. Um, I was determined to figure out a way of telling a story that I felt really strongly about, but that also I wouldn't, you know, write in my own executioner. So I didn't want to. I wanted to have a very, very low budget. I wanted it to be accessible. Um, and with genre films, you don't need to get a bunch of movie stars to get the thing made. Um, the, the genre is its own movie star. And so one of my reps sent it to Blumhouse. And I did not send it to Blumhouse, but I, I had known Jason Blum for probably 25 years. He was a producer on Noah Baumbach's first movie, Kicking and Screaming. So Jason was always around. Um, and so it got sent to Blumhouse, and I didn't know it had been sent, to be honest. And Ryan Turk, who's the head of development, gave it to Cooper Sanderson, who's the head of the film department. Or, yeah. And uh, then I happened to be in L.A. trying to put um, Trinity back together again with my producers. And I kept getting I, I kept getting calls from my manager saying, well, could you go over to Blumhouse and have a meeting with him? I'm like, no, I don't, because I'm doing this and that. And, like, and also, I didn't really realize I'd had the script. And then they said, you know, what, about 2 o'clock? 
walk on Thursday. I'm like, I can't. And then Cooper just sent a message saying, you know what, just come over whenever you can. And I'd never heard that before in Hollywood. So I was like, great, okay. So I went over there, and that was like on a Thursday, and then we had a deal to do 7 at Heaven on Tuesday. It was, I mean, it was literally that fast. Um, and I sincerely enjoyed working over there. It was, you know, it was fantastic. Now, since, um, since you wrote and directed it, did you have input yeah. in the casting? In casting, yeah. Yeah, I had a lot of input in So how do you how um, do you know if someone's right for a role? I mean, as an eye, you know, when you're looking at them, you know, because it's your writing and you know you want them to make the words just pop off the page. How do you, how do you just get a feeling when they walk in, you go, that person's right, or do they sit there and have to sell themselves to you in their audition process? So this is a thing that I got from Matt Ross, because Matt Ross was doing Captain Fantastic, and he had done it, and I, I called him up, and I was like, look, how did you deal with casting young people? Um, because in my first movie, it was just one kid. That was it. It was just one kid, and that, that was super traditional casting, and, and he came into the room and just nailed it, and that was that. But I have a bunch of kids in this one, and so, and, and that's it. I, I am, because I'm an actor, I am way too empathetic. And so, I, you know, I want every kid to be the kid. And I can see every kid, even if they aren't the kid, they're trying. And that makes me think, well, maybe they could be the kid. So he was just like, I, I just don't get the room. He's like, everything had to be on tape. Every, every kid basically just auditioned by tape initially. And I agreed with him on that, that it was much, much easier to go off of taped auditions than being in the room with any of them. This is actually where being an actor is not to your uh, advantage, at least it's not to mine, uh, when you're casting young people. Um, so that's how that happened. But, uh, you know, that said, um, you know, the, the casting, uh, casting director Terry Taylor um, and that whole department over at Blumhouse is also it's just run incredibly well and they have incredibly good taste and incredibly good eye so um, it, it was you know it's never easy but we got there in the end now how is it to direct kids because you know as you said you know your first movie had one kid and I guess Bunheads had kids but how is, it, true, yeah. how is it to direct kids in a feature? I mean, do you sit there and not want to be too hard? Like if someone screws something up because they are kids? Or do you look at them as they're professionals that, so they have to be told what to do and if they get upset, you really can't help that? Um, so I, I start from a position of I tr I'm treating you as a professional. Um, and these kids, by and large, were adults. They were all over not all of them, but most of them. Certainly, uh, Haley and Travis, the two leads, were adults. And that worked out perfectly for us. Like, that's it. it just it treat everybody like a professional um, until it's demonstrated that you can't do it that way. But that tended to be just with the young young kids, where, you know, you're paying them a compliment that you don't need to pay them yet because they aren't there yet. So, yet you, you need to be a little bit more exacting. 
it's, I, 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 you, you know, no matter what, no matter what age any actor, you can't bully a performance out of somebody. It just doesn't work. Um, I, but that doesn't stop directors from trying. But it just doesn't really work. So, you know, um, there were some young kids that, that there, it just meant there was going to be more hand holding. But that's okay. They're young kids, and that's fair. So that was sort of the process, I guess. Now, what was it like directing Gary Cole? Gary Cole, you know, come on, Gary Cole is a gift to the American film world and the stage world, right? He came out of Steppenwolf. So Gary is, I I mean, he's perfect. He's just perfect. He's just absolutely 100% perfect. What he does in front of the camera is perfect, and then he sits down, he's inevitably reading a very large book, and then he goes up and gets in front of the camera and does it perfectly and then goes back to his book. <laughs> and it's great. And then, you know, you can go play golf with him on the weekend. He, he's, it's, you know, it's, it, it, it's what everybody should aspire to. Now, what, um, when you got done Seven in Heaven, yeah. it was your second feature that you wrote right. and directed. Did you feel that you're, that you upped your game like is it is it a process where you think after you know if you practice it gets you better did you feel that you this production was easier for you than the first one just for the fact that it is you already had the first one under your belt I don't know I mean I, I don't know it was it was the first time I was working in genre stuff it was also the first time I was essentially working with a studio um, because even though it's Blumhouse it's universal um it was the first time doing test screenings. It was the first, you know, all of that stuff. So again, there was just a bundle of new, and even the post experience was radically different than my first post experience because there was more money. And it was really codified. It was actually how you really do post up a film. Whereas my first film was like, we posted it, but we posted it, you know, when we found another $250, maybe we could do another two hours of color correction or something, you know. Um, so it was all, I, you know, I felt like this was sort of my first time for a lot of things on the second film. Now, what's in your future? Now, uh, you know, there's a couple of things. My producers and I have another genre film that we are, and it's small, that we're, but it's probably a little bit bigger than, than Blumhouse usually works. Um, uh, I just got the rights to a book that I've always wanted um, that we're trying to figure out how to turn that into a miniseries. And and then there's a, a cool New York thing, a 30-minute pilot that is sort of putting itself together. Um, and so those three things seem to take up most of my day. Now, are you acting anymore? Uh, are you acting anymore? Or are you just putting no, that on the... I'm not going to... I don't think I'm going to act anymore. But then, then again, you know, that, the nice thing about being an actor is... And then who knows, right? Then the phone rings. And I'm like, hey, do you want to come do this as an actor? And I'm like, sure, of course I do. So I'm sure that... Uh, that that, And I, I am talking to folks about, you know, joining up with someone who chose to be an actor. And we'll see how that goes. Um, but mostly right now, it's... 
tearing apart a book and trying to see how to make it a TV show or how to make it a miniseries. Um, which is, again, something I've never done. And it feels, what, what makes it, uh, the book is, it's true. It's a, it's a true event. And it's, it's, it's almost like backwards screenwriting because you have all the characters there, but things aren't in the right order. So you need to kind of rearrange things, but you can't invent very much. You can't make too much stuff up because, you know, these are all real people and this really happened. So it, it's a very, 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 for me at least, it's a very, very strange um, process. And I'm working with it with the, the woman who, you know, reporting and ultimately wrote the book. And, and she's sort of the guardrail of history. And she's like, no, you can't do that. that you can't do that. So, because that is not the way it happened. And you'll get called on the carpet for it. So I'm like, okay, all right. It's, it's a, I don't know. It's, it's proven to be um, very, very interesting and unexpectedly um, difficult isn't quite the right word, but I'll go with it for now. Well, that's awesome, man. I wish you the best of luck. It's good. I'll look forward to it. I know Seven in Heaven. I believe it's on Netflix right now. I think we can see it on Netflix. Yeah, it was. All, it, it went right to Netflix because one of the things that happened is, um, I mean, this is partially the result of Blumhouse's success. We ended up, you know, they're doing a ton of movies at the same time. We ended up... Uh, finishing up in August and then Universal was going to be releasing Halloween, the reboot of Halloween and then Netflix said, could we buy these two, so they bought two movies from Blumhouse for Halloween specifically for Halloween and that, so that's how, you know, we were like, sure, yeah that makes a certain amount of sense so, and you know, then, then you end up on, when you're on Netflix there's the only metric you can find to success is literally like, you know, how much you're trending. And, and that's, so it, it, it makes for a very, you know, all my producers and everybody like sending screenshots of them being in different parts of the country, you know, everybody's around in different parts of the country, sending screenshots of trending and all this, because, you know, Netflix doesn't really tell you very much. Um, so, you know, that, that was frantic. Well, that's awesome, man. I want to thank you for coming on. Now, I found you on Twitter. It's funny. I don't, I don't know how I found you on Twitter, but then I was like, I know that guy. I got to hit him up to be on my show because I've been wanting, I've been getting so many musicians lately that I miss actors, and and I was like, I got to get some good actors. Yeah, but you have a you have a murderer's row of musician interviews that are amazing. I mean, and you've got some amazing people. So, I mean, yeah, it, it, even if it is musician heavy. It's a hell of a group, so. Thank you. Now, now, what's your what's your Twitter? Uh, what is? Give me your Twitter. Uh, it's at Chris Argument. Okay, people, that's E I G E M A N, and uh, people follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk, uh, Instagram Cooper Talk One, my website coopertalk.net email me at cooper at coopertalk.net and I got to ask you before you go because I got stuck yeah. up with something last night. I was doing my research, and there's an old clip of you on Conan and I, I just want to hear before you go your story about you being an ice cream man oh did I tell that on, <laughs> on yeah yeah this was um, years I was, I was still 
other thing that, I mean, maybe this doesn't happen to other people, but I was going slowly mad by listening to Sailing, Sailing Over the Bounding Maine over and over and over and over and over again in my little truck. And then what happens is your moral compass starts to slip a little bit. And so when kids come running up to you, you know, perhaps you don't give the accurate price for a superstar pop. <laughs> maybe maybe you made it to maybe two or three dollars more expensive. Or maybe when a kid obviously having raided his or her father's coin collection and pours fifty buffalo head nickels into your lap, <laughs> you just treat them as nickels just nickels. They're just nickels. Um and maybe if a kid wants to be a jerk and jumps on the back of your little mail truck that's been retrofitted to be an ice cream truck, maybe you forget he's back there and just keep on <laughs> driving for a while and not slowing down too much going through the neighborhood. Because maybe that'll teach him a lesson not to jump on your truck ever again. It was not It was not a great time. I, I think the kids were glad to see me go, and I was certainly glad not to see them. We'll see that, people. Uh, <laughs> you could be an ice cream man and then become a on sitcoms and direct movies. So people, please go uh, check out, uh, go to IMDb, check out Chris Eigenman, and uh, go watch Seven in Heaven. You'll like it. And uh, so once again, thank you. Uh, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.